Hello, everyone. My name is James Rosebush, and I'm CEO and founder of Growth Strategy and Impact Speaker Coach. If you're wanting to learn more how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, Dennis Giannitsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey, welcome to the show, Leadership's Changing. What we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Leaders everywhere confront similar obstacles because people are people, but everywhere you go, leaders are overwhelmed, disrupted, and under pressure. They run from email to email, meeting to meeting. Many leaders are not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. The purpose of the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today. If we can get the leaders to step up and change, then they can inspire real change. It is now time to adapt in our fast-moving world. So listeners, today I have a guest. His name is James Rosebush, and he's widely recognized leader in building and growing corporate and family office and philanthropic uh, organizations, as, as well as serving as an advisor to families on the complex issues of wealth management. He recently published his third book and bestseller, Willing, Winning Your Audience, Speak with the Authority of a President. This follows his bestseller, True Reagan, What Made Ronald Reagan Great and Why It Matters, a rare insight into the 40th president's mysterious character as Rose Bush discerned it from his years of working for him. He is also, uh, he writes weekly columns on leadership and public speaking, appearing on uh, businessinsider.com and Real Leaders Magazine. Mr. Rosebush uh, also was the longest serving chief of staff to the first lady as well. So he's a native Flint, Michigan. So James resides in Washington, D.C. area with his wife of 46 years, the former Nancy Paul. And they have two grown daughters and six grandchildren. So James, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be with you, Dennis. Awesome. Hey, James, can you just, I mean, I've just done a little bit of an introduction there. And so um, can you give us a little bit more about your background, please? I can, but I, I have to start by saying how fascinated I am by your subject and the show that you do. I think it's so important because I think there are two constants that are with us now with regard to leadership. And one is that we have complete disruption that is not going to disappear. And disruption is something that I view as positive. I thrive on disruption, but a lot of people don't. Some people, some leaders can use disruption actually in a negative way. I've uh, worked for and I've had clients, for example, that run their companies by making disruption the rule of the day in order to control people. That's the negative use and employment of disruption. I've seen people who use disruption to create growth, uh, which is tremendously important. Uh, the second phenomenon that we have today is we have this tremendous leadership gap. So I have examined uh, through my work in writing in leadership 
over 300 or 400 different schools and university and education systems around the world. And we have more leadership institutes, more leadership centers, more training programs for leadership today in the world than we've ever had before. But guess what we have less of? We have less leadership. So uh, this is this is a conundrum to me. I don't understand why it is. In fact, I myself started a leadership institute when I was running a school. I was doing a turnaround of a, a prep school and I thought I'm going to convert it into a leadership center. And so I, I went down this path of creating true leadership incentives and training. And I brought in people who could mentor these people and, and provide great examples. But I I figured that. The reason we don't have great leadership today is we don't have as much conviction to lasting principles as we've had before. And we have people who are trying to promote themselves. And by that, I mean egos that are trying to promote themselves. So we have this phenomenon of influencers that have taken the place of leaders. And you know what I mean when I say that People today, they want to be influencers because they make money from it. So you see people mm-hmm. talking about leadership that if they get up a million followers, then they get companies, oh, drive my Mercedes Benz for me, wear my Prada suit, my, all this kind of stuff, right? So that's what they're looking for. But are they truly trying to enhance culture? So social media has degraded culture by cheapening it and taking away accountability. So when I was running, going back to that school for a second, so I had to lay off some people. So I was hired by the trustees of, of this school, basically to work out the investment side. So once I got into it, I saw all this corruption and they said, oh, you have to be the head of the school. And I said, no, I'm not going to be the head of the school, but I'll help you out for a period of time and I'll hire a new head for you. Right. Well, I ended up spending two years there and <laughs> I saw that the lack of conviction and commitment to morals, and I'm not talking about sexual mores, but I'm talking about honesty, integrity. These are things that are the rock bedrock, basically, that leaders in the past have used to speak from. So today, I just saw this replacement of, and, and this is really at all ages and all groups today, replacement of leadership with ego. So you asked me that. I'm sorry that I interjected that little coda there or the opposite of a coda, that little intro there. But you really got me turned on to leadership there. But I'll tell you about the first job I ever had in a leader that I worked for and how he was transformed. So I went to work for the family office and founder of General Motors. No, no slouch. Right. So this was his uh, foundation. And uh, the third week that I was there, I was sitting at my desk and I heard machine gun fire through the front doors of our office, these glass, plate glass front doors. So they were crashed, cracking glass everywhere. We didn't even know the word terrorist at the time, but we grabbed our phones and dove under our desks, right? So these were six ski mask gunmen who were there to not take us hostage because we, we were valueless, but they wanted to take hostage the son of the wealth creator. So he got thrown into a room size safe Today, kids wouldn't know what a room size safe is, but it's a room with a big door on it and you turn the lock and, you know, you protect it. So he was thrown in there, right? So this is what happened. So after five hours, we were led down the fire escape by the SWAT team who got rid of the terrorists and there was no loss of life. The terrorists were arrested, but this is what happened. 
So that man, he was thrown into this room-sized safe. He was obviously terrorized, right? So when he came out, he emerged as a new person. This is what happened. This was a man who was a son of great wealth. He was a wonderful person. And, and he was a personal friend of, of mine and my family. And he was, you know, he was, he was an upstanding citizen, but he lacked fire. He lacked leadership ability and he lacked any kind of passion in his life. I think because he was a son of wealth and, and he didn't really have to go out and change the world uh, to make money, right? His father did that. His father created the automobile, right? So he becomes a brand new person. And he says to me in three weeks after that, he said, Jim, I want you to create, I want you to pull together our trustees and our staff. And I want you to put on, I was 20 years old. He, he said, I want you to put on a planning session, a strategic plan called that where we are, we had to answer the question, are we having an impact? Are we having an impact through our philanthropy and through our investing? So I had to develop algorithms that would show us whether every dollar we were spending in both of those categories was having a desirable impact and what that impact should be. That is, are we moving the needle in terms of improving public housing? Are we moving the needle in terms of, of making enough money by our investments to satisfy the cash requirements of the family, but also the things that we should be focused on? So it was an enormous project. This man, for the rest of his life, and he had 30 more years after that, he became vibrant. He was turned on to life. He was a completely changed person. And I wrote an article about this several years ago, and I didn't want to be presumptuous just taking my view of this gentleman. So I wrote, mm -hmm. I, sent the, I sent the article to one of his daughters or his daughter, and I said, would you corroborate this? Because, you know, today you can be challenged with all kinds of people saying, well, you were lying, you weren't telling, all this kind of stuff, right? So she said, absolutely. I saw this change take place in my father as well. So what I'm bringing out here is that the extreme adversity of the man must have been scared out of his, I mean, we were scared to death. He must have been scared out of his wits, right? So a lot of times, and this is what we have taking place. Um, I was a speaker at a group uh, yesterday morning about, about what we have going on in this country in terms of race and what we have in terms of Black Lives Matter and, and all this sort of thing. And so there was a tremendous discussion about, you know, can you affect change? without disruption? Well, usually not. You know why? Because people don't change. Typically, they don't change unless they're in pain. And even when they're in pain, they rarely change. And this is something that is, I think, fundamental to leadership training is to, in, in my new book, I talk about that the voice you speak with, the words you speak are rarely heard by the listener the way you think you're speaking them. So if I was to say to you, Dennis, hey, let's grab a beer after work, you might think, oh, Jim is saying to me, someday, let's grab a beer after work, whereas I may be saying today, let's gra grab. So that's a simplistic hmm. example, right? Yeah. But rarely are your words or your actions taken the way you intend them to be. And that's largely because we don't have much capacity in terms of understanding and feeling the pain of other people. And I think that came full circle to me yesterday morning when I was on this podcast that had to do with race, that when this young man who was leading the podcast, who was an African-American, he said to me, do you know what it's like to drive in a car and to fear every minute you're driving the car that you're going to be stopped, pulled over and arrested?
for doing nothing, no, no abuse of the law. And how could I say to him, oh, yes, I empathize with you. It's ridiculous. Hmm. And, you know, the ability, I think, as a leader to not only communicate effectively, but to lead has so much to do with your ability to understand the people you are leading and what yeah. their pain is and where their hurt is and what their challenges are and what they're really asking for. And in order to do that, I think, again, this goes back to why we don't have a, as many great leaders today. You really have to feel the pain of the people that you're leading. You know, we had the tremendous failure of leadership on the part of so many corporate CEOs like the famous case of the British petroleum guy who, after the great biggest oil spill in, in the history of mankind, he says he wants to be back on his yacht in England, you know, enjoying himself. I mean, that, that's he obviously he lost his job and a lot of equity value for BP. But, you know, it's, it's unthinkable that someone in a modern age and in, in a job of heading a massive global corporation like that could even speak those words. But mm. it certainly betrayed him. Yeah, yeah. Sounded more like he was out of touch with his actual audience, of course. Uh, yeah. So, James, uh, the, what you've just shared with us there right in the opening has just been really awesome and just some fantastic stuff about disruption. And, and the very first statement you said about disruption, people thrive in it, people are positive about it, and people are negative about it. I oh, just love the way that you've shared that as well. Um, going right through to even what you just said in the last statement just then about, you know, about how can you – if you've got to listen as a leader, you have to understand your audience for sure. Uh, it's really, really important um, for it as well. When, when you say that bedrock of honesty and integrity, can you give us a little bit more about that? What, what do you mean by the bedrock of honesty and integrity? These are qualities that I saw exemplified in the great leader that I had the privilege of working for. So here I go to, by the way, the story I just told you about the terrorists taking us hostage 10 years later. And because with that, uh, the responsibility that man laid on me to create the impact strategy, I was in the White House delivering the nation's impact initiative on behalf of President Reagan. So mm -hmm. these are all things that I think everyone's career and, and life follows a, a pattern. And, uh, you know, it could be brilliant. It could be challenging. But uh, this was the, where I was led. And thankfully. But here I had an opportunity to observe what everyone calls any critic puts Reagan in the top five of all U.S. presidents. Right. So why was he? OK, so this is what I examined in my last bestseller, True Reagan, as you mentioned. So Reagan I didn't understand him. When I, when I went to work there, I was not from California. I didn't come from the film industry. I didn't work in his campaign. I supported him politically. I voted for him. And fortunately, my wife and I had an opportunity to meet the Reagans during the campaign when he came to uh, debate Jimmy Carter in Cleveland, where I was working and heading the Standard Oil Foundation at the time. So that, that was a great privilege. I didn't think at that time that I was going to be invited to go work in the White House, but that after he was elected, his team called me and they invited me. And first, you're not, you're going to laugh at this, but I said, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> inconceivable, right? But uh, yep. I liked my job and everything. So I slept on it, right? So uh, after 24 hours, I called them back and I said, hey, could you I reconsider that? Take back that? No. And so <laughs> sure. I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we don't know. And I said, well, what, I have to have a job to you know, quit my current job, right? And they were mm -hmm. like, yeah, well, you have a job. You have a job. You have a job. And I said, well, what is it going to be? And they said, you pick. You pick. You just say whatever job you want. 
It's wow. weird, right? Have you ever heard of yeah. something like that? I, I thought yeah. it was weird. So yeah. they sent me a book, a list of all the jobs the president could appoint. And I chose the job of being his li- liaison with the business community because that's where my, my leadership is. So anyway, I go to work in this job and then eventually I get asked to, to do other things and I became close to the Reagans, but I still couldn't figure them out, right? So I felt like in order to do my best job, which is what I try to do when I'm, I'm an interim CEO or I'm in an advisory capacity for companies around the world, I have to figure it out first. And usually I'll say, could you just go away and let me listen to this company, listen to its people, listen to what's going on. I have to enter a listening mode first, right? I have to put my ear to it. I have to figure out what are the markets telling me about this company? What is the company telling me about? I have to listen in order to figure out what its critical needs are. So I had to say, do the same thing with the regulars. Like, who are these people, right? So now that might seem strange to you, but you know, every president, I mean, or whether it's a company, they come with their own background and their right? Their, their own experiences. And yep. so I've just had a career where I've worked for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies because I'm an advisor to companies, right? So that's given me this broad gauge and sweep of the corporate, political, philanthropic, NGO sectors all across the globe, right? So I see the this Ronald Reagan. I'm like, so in, in our early days there, he and I were in the presidential limousine alone together one day, and we were going to, he was going to give a speech and I, you know, I was accompanying him and I thought, well, I, you know, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to brief him on the speech, right? So I started to tell him, he said, no, Jim, no, no, no. I, I know, you know, his personal aide had already briefed him. I, and then I sat there, I thought, oh my gosh. So, you know, and then there was a delay in the motorcade which actually turned out to be uh, divine uh, operation coincidence, right? So then I thought, well, what are we going to talk about now? So he unfolded for me in the next 30 minutes, his life as he saw it. Now, this ah. was invaluable to me, right? So he explained to me how the most important person in his life was his mother and why she was important and what she gave him and what she demanded of him. And I began what began to emerge in my mind. This is not a person that people know, because, of course, any any conservative president in the United States and probably other countries as well as just comes up against the the liberal media all the time. We had all kinds of protests. He, you know, he it was just as it was as bad. People think today is bad in America. Well, it was just as bad then. But now I'm saying to myself. What he's telling me is not what the public picture is, how he was brought up, his faith. He grew up poor. I mean, his parents never even owned a home or an apartment. They, they lived in rented houses. His father was an alcoholic. He, uh, you know, all of these things that I was really learning, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I was really learning for the first time. I mean, I knew the basics about him, but so he's pouring out his heart to me, right? And I just kept asking him questions, perhaps in ways that other, uh, you know, uh, senior aides to the president, you know, had never asked him before. I don't know why, because there have been, you know, there were many people there that had been with Reagan much longer than I had come from California and everything. Right. So we're talking about leadership here. Right. So I'm getting into the heart of the man. Mm. Okay, this is the heart of the man. What the value where his values came from, why 
he was an immovable person. He was a rock, bedrock of beliefs. He believed what he believed in, and he believed in America and American values. And he believed 1000% that if the light of American exceptionalism were to grow dim, the rest of the world would go into chaos. And he also believed that every person had a God given right to freedom. And he also knew that socialism, communism, all the isms that were uh, an attempt to make people think that they were for the people were the opposite. They were to take uh -huh. away, they were, they were to take away the rights of individual freedom and individual liberty. And what happened, what would happen to the world if we have enough socialism and communism, and particularly at that time in the world, that had millions of people had suffered death, poverty, destruction, uh, uh, you know, no hope, no, no future. Uh, mm -hmm. through these through these systems right and he knew that and he wanted you know he almost became a preacher he almost went to he went to the almost went to theological school with his best friend after he graduated from college but i would say if he had done that and he became a minister he would have might have ministered to thousands but he became an evangel for millions because he would constantly preach about individual freedoms and individual liberty and their importance and the fact that the American Constitution protects those rights and that he was a staunch defender of those rights and that uh, no one was going to usurp his conviction to that. And, you know, the media would always say, oh, he's so boring. He says the same thing over and over again. Well, you know, repetition in communication, which is one of the things I talk about in my new bestseller, Winning Your Audience, is repetition is key to having your, your message understood. Even though people will say, oh, please, the same old thing, you know, he's saying the same, she's saying the same old thing over and over again. And, well, it's because repetition helps instill what you're, you're saying in, in the listener's thought, mind, and heart, right? So this is watching, learning, getting to work with, I mean, how many people get to work with one of the greatest leaders in the world at a time in particular when, because he was, I had to negotiate with the, with the rest of the Soviets, with the Chinese, with people all over the world, uh, because I traveled with him to all the countries where he he went on state visits. I was in most in the traveling party with to most of those countries. So that gave me an opportunity to expand my understanding of international relations, bilateral, multilateral relations as well. But here was you talk about leadership. Uh, here is one extraordinary example of a person who most importantly, and to come back to something I mentioned a few minutes ago, egoless, mm. egoless. How rare is that, right? Most of us care even a little bit about what people think about us. I know I do. Sure. I, I, I do too much. I know that. I, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to what, you know, if a person doesn't like me or whatever. Reagan, zero. Zero. Didn't, didn't even measure on the meter. Now, I'll tell you why I learned this is important in leadership. And this is probably why we don't have much of it today. The reason it's critical to great leadership is because if you don't care what people think of you, you cannot be manipulated by them. Now, follow this for a minute. If you don't care, let's say someone comes and knocks on the Oval Office door. Oh, Mr. President, I want you to vote for this. I, you know, I want you to propose this. I want you to approve this. I want you to. 
but you don't want it. And then they say, well, you know, I'll promise you a million votes if you, you know, or I'll, you know, I'll contribute to your campaign or blah, 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 blah. Reagan, a lot of presidents would be, and we've had, we have some people right in the room, so to speak, right now who, who had egos, most of us do, but had egos and they were susceptible to that. Reagan was this unusual person. He didn't care what you thought of him. So he was immune from your control of his thought or his actions. So you saw Reagan, he leaves office after eight years, the exact same person as he Mm. entered. Now that's another rare thing. Most people, let's say they're, they're coming in to be the, I, I remember I had, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who was just moved as CEO, one position to another company. And I said, you know, I really think this time you should get rid of the company plane because it doesn't look good, you know, whatever. And he basically paid the bill, stood up and left, and I never talked to him again. So he, he didn't, you know, hey, I like to travel on private aviation as well. Don't get me wrong. But I was just saying that, obviously, that was kind of the opposite of Reagan. But you have this ability to see things unfettered by the way people want you to see them. Right. So if you're in a position of leadership, and let's, let's just take the Oval Office for a minute. People are lined up all day and night to talk to you, to get you to change your views, to accept what they think. Reagan was immovable. He was, and, and people would say he's, he's stubborn. He won't change his mind. People would have to go around his back. They get people fired. Her, his wife went around his back, you know, get people fired, get people hired. And because they, they couldn't find another way to influence him because he right. had no ego. Now you contrast that with Margaret Thatcher. So Thatcher, who I had, again, I had the extraordinary opportunity of meeting her any number of times. And, and I remember early on in the relationship between Reagan and Thatcher, Thatcher I was at a luncheon at number 10 down, Downing Street with the president. And it, she had to get up and leave because she said, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you have to leave, stay and enjoy your dessert or whatever. And she said, I have to go over to the House of Commons for uh, questions. And so I happened to just be it's very, very different, the, the PM's office there than the White House. So she was she didn't have an A, she didn't have anyone with her. She's like walking down the front steps uh, there inside at number 10. And so I, I was leaving the same time. So I walked down the stairs. She's just talking to me like, Jim, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think? She's in regard to the bottom and she's looking out the door and she said, gee, you know, I, you think I can, I need to get a car to go over to House of Commons. And I'm like, What? you know when the american president moves every single step is calculated the limousine moves exactly in step with his steps and the door opens precisely at the millisecond that he you know what i mean everything is choreographed right so i see her so then okay let's fast forward like 10 years later i remember after i left the white house i went to or even eight years later i i was invited in London to go to one of her, in, in her party, uh, prime minister's party, to go to where she was, because um, she had to stand for re-election to go to her constituency, right? I mean, this lady had, unfortunately, she's, she began to believe in her own greatness. Mm-hmm. And that was her downfall. Right. So don't you think that kind of sums it up? Yeah. If you, yeah, if you look, I- at, look at the egoless Reagan, and you look at Thatcher, who did magnificent things, for the UK and for her country, you know, for, for her country and for the world. I mean, I had endless respect for her, but 
her her power and her influence was eclipsed by the fact that she had this ego in in the end you know she she believed in her greatness and i you know i think it's kind of a contrast because i had many opportunities to uh, spend time with the with the queen as well, and you look at these two women, and it, it was a you know it got to be a stark contrast because Thatcher obviously had a high sense of her self importance, and the queen, is the most important person probably I mean I always say the American president's the most important job in the world at any given time with any occupant I think the queen, you know people will say well she doesn't really have any political power but she's the only human being on the face of the planet who's actually read intelligence reports for 65 freaking years. You know? she, she knows more about the history of the world than any yep. other living person. So, but anyway, I'll stop yeah, so, there. James, I think, you know, uh, what you shared before was about listen to the company and the people and the egoless side of things as well and not being able to be manipulated, but you as a leader doing what you need to do. Is, it's, it's really amazing. This. And you can see that being played out as we see leaders around the world. So I think you know what you said as well. The heart of the man, or the heart of the of a person as a leader, is to get is is to get and understand what their values are, and you know what Reagan shared with you and about his mother uh, and so forth. I think a lot of people they tend to not be interested in the person, and they sort of want to just get on and get what they want done. And I think it's so important to know what that person, what people are thinking, which is really cool. So, Jim, I've got a question here for you, because I think you've probably covered my first question, which is around who is your favorite leader and why. And maybe Reagan is that person, uh, unless you have somebody else who is a favorite leader uh, of yours, you know, alive or from history. Um, do you have another one, or was, it, was Reagan that <laughs> favorite person? I'll give you, I'll give you uh, just one very quick example of a contemporary leader that I have extraordinary respect for. And his name is Jake Wood. And he went to many volunteer, voluntary duty assignments to Afghanistan. He endured many broken limbs, near-death experiences, absolutely heroic person. He comes back and he sees that the suicide rate right, among uh, military is so high. He's, he's perplexed by this. He's saddened by it. And he gets the idea that, well, people are in the military, they feel a purpose mm. to their life. All of a sudden they come back, they have no purpose. They have no, they have no team. They, ha- they, you know, the, the, maybe they're getting an hourly job or something. This is tragic. So he starts something called Team Rubicon. And this is absolutely my absolute favorite, favorite, favorite charity and organization in the whole world. And he, what he does is he deploys military type style managed teams to remediate hurricanes, fires, tornadoes, any place like recently they've been remediating where there's violence in in American cities. They go out, they go out in squads, these former military, and they are there to save people. Right. And I, I think Jake Wood is an absolute, incredible, total hero leader of mine. Yeah, awesome. So giving them a sense of purpose as well to get out there and do things, but leading it from the front, which is brilliant. So, James, the, the show here is um, called Leadership is Changing. When I, I say that statement, what does that mean for you? Leadership is changing for a lot of reasons, I think, because, I mean, you certainly have the standard ones of 
politics, tax policy. You know, we're, uh, companies are driven by tax policy. They're driven by trade agreements, right? So mm-hmm. you have, for example, right now, Volkswagen and, and Mercedes-Benz and General Motors, you know, big, they produce a lot of cars in China. What's going to happen? You know, I have to all figure this up. So um, I, I advise uh, a man who's the president of one of the major global companies, and he and he's also the CFO of this company. And he asked me recently to write a speech for him. And I, I said, if it's okay with you, I'm going to title it, the CFO has a soul. Nice. Okay. So you don't usually think of CFOs, right? They're just like numbers people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, today, a CFO has to be much more multifaceted. I think in the past, you could have an accounting degree and be a CFO, right? Today, you have to know not only numbers, but you have to be prescient. You, you have to be prophetic. You have to be, you have to be thinking, okay, what is going to affect not only next quarter or next year, but you have to think like 10 years out, 20 years out, what's going to be happening. And you have to understand markets as much as uh, numbers. So I think all these jobs are taking on many different facets. So if you're, uh, if you're, the, if you're the CEO, he's the president of this company. If you're CEO of a company, you have to, and this is where there's a huge, 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 huge deficit. You have to be, you know, Reagan said, they, they criticized him for being an actor, right? As if a, an, an actor couldn't become president, right? So it was just a way of demeaning him, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, I actually, he always knew how to turn, turn a phrase, right? So he said, I actually amazed that anyone could be filling this job if they weren't an actor. <laughs> Beautiful. Right? So yeah. uh, this is what I say about CEOs today. You know that only 23% of all business schools require and of an MBA, MBA graduate to have studied public speaking. Now, I have to tell you this, not just because I have this book and not just because I coach CEOs to, to speak, but I would say this. I, I would sit here and I would say to you, Dennis, that a course in public speaking is more important than a course in accounting. I totally agree. Totally I mean, agree. think about it. Think about it. Look at all these CEOs. They can't even talk. L- look at look at Elon Musk, who I have huge, huge, huge admiration for. I mean, I want to drive a Tesla, right? So Elon Musk, he, he gets an SEC violation because he, he's smoking a joint and he calls up or he, he you know he, he sends out a tweet, some ridiculous thing about his equity value of his company, and he influences the stock price that the. the uh, fluctuation of his the equity in his company i mean these people are there they think because they make a lot of money i guess or they're in a powerful position that they don't have to be able to communicate and boy that's the biggest downfall when when mm-hmm. they figure out that they have to be able to speak i think so that's that's one area i think where there's a, a massive amount of change in evolution uh, i think certainly the whole global multilateral relations. I think you, you see, for example, look at the, the phenomenon of Davos. So all these global CEOs coming together, right, to address this. You have right now an evolution, I think, in impact and ESG where the marketplace isn't completely pivoted yet, but you have a lot of companies trying to lead the way in climate issues, sustainability, habitats, all this kind of thing. They're wrestling with this issue, and some of them have got it wrong. Some of them have it right. Some of them are 
think they're immune to it. And they want to know where the consumer is going, certainly. And, and that's, that's sending a little bit of mixed messages. The media sends one kind of message. What, but you have, to, you have to think these things through for yourself. So I would say this. In summary, about the change of leadership, I would say that it is an almost lethal time to be a leader because you, you're so watched by not just the media, but stakeholders, shareholders. You know, they, they want to know what you're thinking at every moment, and you have to be responsive to them in ways that you've never had to be responsive before. And uh, I, I think it's a tremendously serious time for for leaders. But we also at the same time need more leaders who will stand up, be stand-up characters and to lead. And I mean to lead by offering their own examples and their own authenticity and their own words that raise us up. People are afraid. You know, this is one more thing about Reagan, not to bore you with this, but one of the reasons Reagan was popular was so popular well, I'll ask you this question. Do you know why Reagan, one of the reasons Reagan was so popular? And that was he told people that they were good. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen this with, in myself. So I give a lot of speeches, right? And I've noticed that when I tell people that they're good and that they've done well and that they've worked hard and that, you know, these kinds of, they're, they're like, really? Do you really think so? Yes, I do. I like to tell my audiences before I start how much I admire them. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for, for listening to me for a couple of minutes. You're good people. I, I want to support you. What can I do for you? So Reagan was like that. I watched him, right? He mm-hmm. loved his audiences. He loved his audience. And that's how he built a bridge to his audience. In my book, again, Winning Your Audience, I talk about how critical it is to Build a bridge to your audience and tear down the fourth wall. The fourth wall is the resistance that you feel from your audience and the skepticism that they feel. Because before you start to speak, and 65% of all communication is nonverbal, by the way. Don't ever forget that. It's, It's your own consciousness of yourself and your own authenticity and how you view your material. So they come in, they're like, oh, I don't know. I might listen to her or not, you know, blah, blah, blah. I might fall asleep, might get on my phone. And I know because I've stood up in front of enough audiences and it's scary, but I'm telling you that you have to build a bridge to your audience. Now, one time I was talking to the great stage actress, Mary Martin, and, you know, many films, she's a very famous person, won't be recognized by younger people today, but you look her up. She's an amazing person. And uh, I said to her, we were standing on the South Lawn of the White House one day, and I said to her, oh, why do your audiences like you so much? And she threw her arms around me. That was fun, right? And she said, Jim, I was born in Texas and I was born loving people. Uh, And they loved me back. Never forget that. Never forget that. That's beautiful. I I was born loving people and they loved me back. Yeah. Okay. Now you see that uh, Reagan loved people. Everywhere he went, when we went to uh, in Ballyperine, his his hometown in uh, of his family background uh, in uh, Ireland, uh, all the people. It, this wasn't staged either. Gather round him. Let's have a pint together. Blah 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 blah. Why did they like Reagan? The media called him elite, rich, you know, which was a complete, absolute lie, and uh, grew up poorer than any of them. 
And uh, why did they like Reagan? You know why? Because he liked them. Yep. And they could tell that. They could tell that. You yep. can always tell a phony, you know, an, an effete person, right? But they, they liked him. They liked him. So you know why? Because he liked them. Nice. Nice. You, you, people can see, you know, if you're not authentic, people can read you and they understand that you're not authentic. And so you're right. I mean, people need to, you need to love people. You need to love your audience. And it's not about you. It's about your audience. And so, which is really important. And uh, I love it how you talk about how you raise people up, how you actually, you know, admire them and, and do it, but do it in an authentic way, of course. Yeah. So listeners, I'm here with James Rosebush, who's the author of Winning Your Audience and um, some fant- and he's, you know, fantastic stuff that he's sharing with us here right now. Jim, here's another question for you. If there was one thing you could change in business as a leader today, what would that one thing be? I guess, I, I think that's a tough question, uh, Dennis. I think that leaders, business leaders, I think need to stand up for the virtues of capitalism and, and be unashamed for it because capitalism is the one system that has brought people more people out of poverty than any other economic system uh, in the world, in, in the history of the world. And it has not only brought people out of poverty, but it's given them a fulfillment and a sense of purpose and uh, taken them away from the shards of a purposeful life, purposeless life uh, and, and kept them from descending into drugs and uselessness, right? If you know you have to go to work and you're going to be rewarded for it, it mm-hmm. gives you a reason to get up in the morning. And sure. so I would rather live in a country where people want to get up in the morning and go to work than go and collect a welfare check, right? right. So right. I think that this is, a, this is getting confused among business leaders today. Capitalism is the absolute best way to advance culture, uh, advance and protect civilization. There's no question about it. And I think we need more CEOs to be unabashed in, uh, sure, they, they enjoy the fruits of capitalism, right? But they're a little bit reticent, I think, to speak out for it. And I think we need them to be the captains of industry, to be sol- foot soldiers in uh, support of capitalism. And that doesn't mean that you're you're supporting systems or businesses that take advantage of people, but you're supporting a system that provides opportunity to to people that is never known. Uh, there's never been a system known as effective in the history of mankind for this. And it seems like right now we have, I think, because these business leaders may suffer doubts in their own minds about this. We see, you know, the public and especially the young people that, well, why, you know, what's wrong with socialism? Oh, well, you know, have you been to Venezuela? Oh, Venezuela is not that bad. Well, you go down there and you live under a dictatorial system where people are eating shoe leather for dinner. You know, there, there's no food, there's no healthcare system. Uh, well, yeah, but what about Cuba or what about Sweden? Or, you know, they'll, they'll throw all these things in front of you. And I think we need more business leaders to stand up and be truth tellers. I think they're timid to do this because they feel that it's not their job or their shareholders. You know, they've got shareholders that won't like it if they speak out in public. I think there are ways to do it appropriately. Hmm. But to point out to and be courageous enough to show that, hey, we wouldn't be making the advances that we are today. I mean, look at SpaceX itself, you know, the first private company to lift off and uh, take you yeah. know, two guys up to the space station. Right. So it, it's not really government that takes us into the future. It's business and individual initiative that takes yep. us into the future. 
Yeah, yeah, great, great. Hey, um, the other thing I was going to ask you here is uh, I've got a couple more, three more questions for you, actually. And um, yeah. one, one of them is um, what makes a leader successful today in this fast-paced, ever-changing world? Today, I think success is measured by inventiveness. And, and let, let's look at COVID-19 uh, as much as I don't like it even use the word, right? But I think that the race toward finding, you know, a, a solution, you know, either on the testing side or uh, on, on a permanent solution to heal the virus, right? And get rid like, of it. Like find a vaccine, just what you mean? Yep. Yeah, yeah, find a vaccine. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, whenever you have a problem presented, I think there are people that look at it as an opportunity. Right. So that that's what I would say. That That's yep. what I, I would say is so critical, right? Is to look at a problem as an opportunity. And that's what business is all about. If you're incentivized to make money, if, if you're not, uh, where, where the solution is going to come from. Now, I, I think that the people, the leaders today that are most heralded are the people that are inventing new solutions. One time I had engagement with uh, a major urban hospital and I was asked to start a kind of a, an initiative to bring clinicians and investors together to accelerate the introduction and commercialization of pediatric devices. And right. this, this was a really, I, I love this because you had the clinicians who did the studying, you had the investors who had the money, right? And then the hospital, it was a platform to actually get these products manufactured and get them out there on the marketplace. And who was who the beneficiary? The kids, right? The, the, the children who, for example, there was a painkiller or a pain remediation product that the hospital clinicians had invented and tested, but they needed more money, you know, so bringing, bringing these things together. I think those are the kinds of things that in the business community, you know, there's, there's the humdrum stuff that has to be done. And those people are really admired for that as well. But my dad, who was a General Motors executive was one among the ranks of many GM executives, he was one of the known as one of the biggest cost savers. He would go to the office every day and a part of his kind of makeup was to find more efficient ways of doing business. And I love that. And that, you know, my dad gave me three things. He was a corporate executive who did things like that, big cost saver and an inventor of new ways to, to run the business. Secondly, he was a musician. And thirdly, he was a public speaking coach. And so he gave me all three of those things. So those are my passions, you know, to to improve and to grow business, uh, to be a better musician than I am now. I'm not as good as he was and to be a coach of public speaking. So I had his training. He was a Dale Carnegie uh, speech coach in his free time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when he wasn't playing golf or playing the piano, or the trumpet or, you know, doing his job and his formal job and then be trained by Ronald Reagan. So that's why I had to you know, as a part of my advisory work, do this uh, coaching because I I was given such a gift from my dad and from Ronald Reagan, learning a million lessons from him about how to be a great communicator. Awesome. Look at the problem as an opportunity. Beautifully. Um, that That's really cool how you said that, uh, James. And, and the other thing, too, is about being innovative as a leader. That's what we're looking for, uh, you know, and how leaders can be successful in today's ever-changing world. So I said there was three questions. So that was one. There's the, the last question here in this part, and then I've got one that right at the end. And, and that is, um, you've talked about 
your experiences and, and what you've done with, with leaders. And, you know, you've talked about General Motors. I mean, I worked for a company called EDS that was owned by General Motors yeah. at one stage, which was pretty cool. Um, so if I was to get, ask you to get your crystal ball out, if I can talk about that, the future, where, where do you, well, where do you see leadership being in five years from now? I hope in a better place than it is today. But, yeah. you know, hope is, uh, that that's my hope. But, oh, gosh, I, I think that the media scares a lot of people. I, I think the media, it's so tough to get your message across and to keep yourself out of trouble. Uh, e- even people, you know, I mean, my favorite paper is the Wall Street Journal. So uh, they're, they're not really trafficking in in gossip or you know they're, they're not trying to destroy anyone's career i don't think but the cost i think of being a, a leader in a in an organization where you are going to be seen judged and appraised by your shareholders your cus- your customers you know and the public in general i think is is a mighty cost there's a mighty cost to pay for that giving up your own personal uh, your privacy, your family life, and all that sort of thing. So I think a lot of people shy away from that. Uh, I think that what we're going to have to have is we're going to have to have a new generation of people who are more interested in the future of our country, of our values, and and the world than in themselves. Right. And that's why I don't have much hope for it. I have to be honest with you, Dennis. And I'm an optimist. I'm totally an optimist, just just like Reagan. Uh, and, and this uh, podcast I told you about earlier on race yesterday, I closed it by saying, and they asked me a similar question. They said, well, Reagan would always say that America's best days are still ahead. Same for the world. The world's best days are still ahead. I mean, he, he really believed that. He, did, he didn't believe in the end times. He believed that things were going to get better and better. And it's hard, you know, as this young man was saying to me, as I shared with you, you know, how would you like to be driving in a car and being afraid that you're going to be picked up by a, by a policeman for doing nothing? And uh, I, I, I get that. And it's hard to say that to a person who's living in, in that kind of terror and that kind of fear. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think, however, that we all have to be committed to improving the quality of life for as many people as we possibly can. That requires selfless devotion to a cause. And I hope, I hope that we can have a rising generation that is more concerned about improving the race and improving civilization than they are their own self-satisfaction. I think that, you know, but, but I just don't see it. I, I, unfortunately, I, I, I'd like to be able to say to you, Dennis, I see all oh, the next generation they are coming out of leaders. Oh, they're, they're really unselfish. They're, you know, right, no, right now we have tremendous problems among millennials to even relate to other people. Their, their communication skills are even worse than the, the generation before them. So it's, they've really got to solve this problem because a lot of them are, and, and I, I work with some of them and they've asked me, you know, what should I do? I, I don't know how to create a relationship. I don't, I don't know how to get, a lot of them are just wandering the world. They, they don't know how to, uh, how to, how to have a good relationship and how to uh, relate to other people. And I always tell them, here's, here's one little thing you can try. Be curious about other people. Oh, well, what do you mean by that? Be curious. Well, we don't know how to be curious. I said, it's easy. Go up to someone and say, where were you born? 
Well, uh, I, I work at, you know, uh, I, I work at General Motors New Zealand or something like that. Well, no, no, no. I, I don't, I don't want to just know where you work. Where, where were you born? Oh, oh, well, I was born in Scotland. And, I've, and then, then you go, whoa, oh, that's so beautiful. I, I've had the opportunity. I went to Scotland one time. Where, so you see where I'm going? I, yeah. I'm saying this is how you get a toehold into building a relationship, right? And millennials, they just lack that curiosity, but they ha- there, there are ways to fix it and to, to get practical and affirmative relationships going. But, you know, that, that's a problem that that, that that whole group has. So to be interested and caring about other people and their problems and their opportunities is something that we, we need to have a whole lot more of. Excellent. James, thank you. Um, you know, big, big expectations on leaders because stakeholders and customers and employees are all expecting big things and they're being judged and being looked at. And uh, so selfless devotion to a cause is probably what we're looking for in round leaders going forward as well. So thank you, uh, James, for joining us on the show today. So the last question I've got for you is if it, listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where, where should they go? Oh, I'd love to talk to any of your listeners. So you can find me in a couple of different ways. Of course, on LinkedIn, James Rosebush. Uh, I've got everything there from the day I was born to today. And you can see I have a YouTube channel. You can hear me speak. But you can go on two different websites and you can trace me right back to there. You can call me. You can text me. That The first one is growthstrategy.us. That's G-R-O-W-T-H-S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y, Growth strategy.us and then my speech coaching which is found at impactspeakercoach.com www.impactspeakercoach.com and that will tell you basically more than you ever need to know or want to know about me but love to talk to to any of you love to speak before any of your audiences or work with any of your companies or you as individuals I think that these things that we've been talking about here, I, I have so much respect for you, Dennis, for having this podcast and for sending out these messages. There are thousands of podcasts out there now. And you know what most of them are about? Making yourself happy. Or how yeah. do you sleep how do you sleep better? Or how do you know? Okay, fine. I don't mean to belittle those people. I think you've got the subject that really needs to be addressed. Awesome. James Rosebush, thanks for joining us on the call today. So what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown and the unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. So look out for the episodes, download them, have a listen, put a review and a rating. Let your friends and network know about the podcast as well. If there's some feedback you'd like to give me about the show, feel free to email me, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. And I look forward to hearing from you and your comments. Uh, If there is a question you want me to ask our leaders as I actually interview them, feel free to let me know by email as well. And uh, look out for the episodes, Ask Dennis, where I will ask some of those questions. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 